All right, you're doing video as well? Oh, yeah, cool. Much better for me. My God. <laughs> yeah. I've not, not done my hair. <laughs> I have a face for radio, bloke. Yeah, so do I, luckily enough. Luckily <laughs> no, you enough. don't. You're a handsome devil. What are you on about? <laughs> So this is um, Torrid Arbor to me podcast, the Corona, the COVID isolation specials. We've done 17 now in uh, in 19 days. So we're, we're going through and trying to keep people entertained and get some interesting content out there for the people of Derby. Um, a very special guest we've got today that I've been trying to pin down to um, have an interview with for a couple of different things for, for work at, at BBC Radio Derby. I've never got around to doing it. It's always been in, in my head to do it. And... Um, for the podcast, ever since I started the podcast, it's um, White Town, aka Jyoti Mishra. How are you? All right. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, getting getting through it. Um, trying to keep Jyoti busy as much home. as I can, but it's one of them, isn't it? You just keep, there's only so much you can do, and it's you just got to keep battling on. How, how have you been coping with the social distancing? Oh, I haven't. I've just gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> I've just gone doolally, to be honest. It's not easy, especially for creative type people that are always up to something. It's Well, I, I live alone and I work from home, so I'm used to going out to kind of get around that, you know, because it's, it's quite a lonely life if you're just living and working at home. Uh, but now, of course, you can't, you know, so I'd always, you'd always see me like saunter around town, have a coffee, just to get out of the house and see actual other humans. Yes. Um, and now that's only via Zoom or something, which isn't the same, let's be fair. It's yeah. like a boring version of Pornhub, let's be honest. <laughs> I think that's the, uh, that's the next on the agenda once I finish this interview. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I'm well, you want to spend your day, Blake. It's up to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's going to take us right back to, we'll start from at the beginning of when you first like, grew up and, and came to Derby. Was you quite young when you first came to live in the city? Yeah, I was, uh, I am actually, I must have been just around uh, 10 or so because... I managed to get in for like one little bit of a term at Portway and then went up to Woodland. So, and it was also, um, it was just before Jubilee year, which is 77, because obviously you're like a fetus, but I'm like an old man. <laughs> uh, so that, this is a long time ago. So I, I probably pitched up in like, probably 77, to be honest, but before my 11th birthday. Um, so I've been here since 77. On and off, one break in Norwich in the 90s. That's about it, really. What are your kind of memories from from when you first moved here? Was it a, a bit of a shock to the system, or was you a bit too young to understand the the change in moving from moving from India to to Derby? Oh no, I didn't come here from India. Basically, I moved from India when I was three. Oh, okay. And, and we moved basically from Kettering, Wales, Pontypridd in Wales, Wellingborough, Norwich, Bristol. And then Derby, so like, <laughs> wow, I'd moved, I'd moved around. Like, yeah, I went to like ten schools before the age of ten. So, um, I'm your classic like weird geeky outsider, new kid at school. Also, often the only uh, South Asian kid at school. So, didn't go really that well in the seventies, to be honest. How did you deal with that? Because it was obviously a, a different time and a lot of negative things. I dealt with it by calling my band White Town. <laughs> Is Derby back then was not like now. Things have got better. I know things could get even better, but like 
Derby back then was much more openly racist and it was a tough time. Um, you know, and like back then, obviously it was the Eagle Centre and often I'd go and I'd be like the only South Asian around and there's no other Asian Asians even now, you know, you'd see a few black kids, maybe some, uh, Chinese Asians, but that's about it. You wouldn't see really anybody else. And it was a, a much more, and also after this is a time, the national front being big and having tele adverts, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was a, a much different place. Having said that, it wasn't like, it was worse anyway, probably the worst time. I was in Bristol, ironically, which is a very mixed area, but Derby was better than Bristol for sure. And when I settled in here, you know, it was like, um, it, it was just, I don't know, it was just like a shock to the system. And then once you settled in, you're like, oh yeah, okay. And people knock Derby a lot, but it's actually always had a lot going for it. I don't know why people... If you've never lived anywhere else, you might think Derby's not that great. But trust me, I've lived loads of places. Derby's pretty good, but people don't realise it if they've only ever lived here. I That's something I um, try and bang the drum off quite a bit, that Derby gets a bit of a bad rap, and it's always kind of in Nottingham shadow as a, a place for... Dar- Derby's worst enemy is Derby. Derby's yeah. worst enemy is Derby people bringing it down and slagging it off. Especially if you're a kid and you're just born and raised here. You want to get around and go somewhere really properly grim, honestly. Just go. I mean, not in the name of your places because they'll they'll get me. But like, there's plenty of worse places. Trust me, I've I've been I've gigged there. Yeah. So, so like, like you know, we got things. I mean, let's be honest. We shouldn't really have the into. It's far too big a shopping centre for yeah. the city we are. We shouldn't have quad, which is a huge resource that people don't even know about. There's a cinema there and like arts and stuff. Um, we've got loads of stuff going on. And also, and I'll say this out loud, we've always had a better music scene in Nottingham. For, yeah. for being a smaller city, there's always been more going on here and more happening. And yet people slag it off. And I mean, my challenge to them is go and live a few other places and then come back and tell me if Derby's that bad. Because it really isn't. It's just like, you need to travel a bit to appreciate what you've got at <laughs> home. I think you're spot on there because it, it, it seems to happen in waves, especially for me uh, growing up being like a, a mid-team. There was a bit of a, a good music scene starting with the Vic. and So let me work it out. So, oh yeah, so okay. So let me think. When would you, were you, when were you at clubbing and where were you clubbing at? I was, I went from being 17, 18, I was going to like the Bless, Blue Note, um, Mosh, obviously Mosh Mondays, so I used to talk to you a bit in there. And be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but oh, Mosh was amazing. Like, like well, this will be when you're 18, 2010 was when you're 18, wasn't it? So, yeah. like, God, uh, oh, Mosh was brilliant then. It was like a breath of fresh air and everything. It? Yeah, it was. And I was at college at the time, and it was, like, the be- the best night out of the week because it would be incredibly cheap drinks and brilliant music. And it was, like... I, I, used, to go, I used to go Mondays and Fridays because Fridays was a proper, like, grab night. Yes. So like Fridays you could, well, basically you could go Mondays, Fridays and Saturdays for a while because you could go three days a week. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah. And I think if there's one criticism I'd make of Derby, it's not of the people of Derby or the infrastructure or anything. It's that I don't feel that we get support perhaps from people in local government for things like venues, music, you know, all the stuff that, that gives a city a cultural edge. You know, things like, you're too young to remember, but like, we used to have the Big City Bash. Okay. And, uh, and that was like a party every summer in the uh, the marketplace. And they wow. used to get, like, chart bands in, and local bands could end up supporting, like, big chart bands. Uh, and this happened uh, with the Beekeepers, I don't know if you remember them or know them, but, like, they're a really big local band. They got to support Let Loose. 
Um, and it was, a, you know, you could have this kind of thing. It was like a summer party. Wow. Or, or bank holiday Mondays from a certain generation. If, you, if it was a bank holiday Monday, you couldn't choose where to go in Darwin. There were too many places to go. You go like the Vic or you go like the Darwin it was open or you go like different other places. Always have something on. Um, honestly, you couldn't choose. And, and that kind of, I wish that hadn't gone away so much. It's much harder to keep a venue going now. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the main issues that the people of Derby want all of these things. And then when, once they've got them, they don't take advantage of them. And we had, with the Vic and the venue, at one point there was some brilliant bands. Still to this day, Brett's doing a, a, a good job at the venue getting some, some good bands there. But it, yeah. it was, like you say, in, in previous years, brilliant, a brilliant music scene. What, what kind of time was it when you got started to get involved yourself in, in the Derby music scene? Oh, God. Well, obviously, because I'm an old geezer, I've been gigging around here since... I mean, I, I left school in 1982. I left Woodlands in 1982 and I was 16, specifically to leave school, because I hated school so much. I was drunk through a lot of it, um, and joined a band. And that was it. And I joined a band from Burton and we gigged around. But So basically, I've been on some kind of... I'm probably less now, obviously, because I'm an old git, but like... Um, since 1982, really, and it's, there's always been stuff going on. Uh, and <laughs> ironically, in 82, there are probably more bands in Burton than Derby. Okay, I don't know why, maybe because there wasn't much to do in Burton, but like, um, it, there's always been like a great local music scene. And whether it's the, uh, for a while it was a Lord Nelson, it was a Vic, then it was the Warehouse. You know, I saw, um, I saw Bikini Kill, Huggy Bear at the Warehouse. I really? Saw, yeah, they played that. I saw Oasis at a warehouse. No, that's incredible. They were there supporting the BMX Bandits. Wow. Because you know, they, they were a new creation band, so BMX Bandits took them out as tour support. Um, and, like, um, God, like, Boo Radley's played there. Yeah. My Buddy Valentine played at the Dial. Um, the Manic Street Preachers played at the Bell. You know, and even going back before I was out, New Order played at the Blue Note. Yes. Yeah. So that, I think the four played there well. So all this stuff, and going way back, even before I was born for a change, Louis Armstrong played, I think it was um, where um, where Cosmo is now. I think before that was a cinema, it must have been some kind of venue or something. But this is like, obviously, 1936, so even I wasn't knocking around then. Um, so there's always been like great music stuff happening, but we don't tend to big it up. We don't tend to talk about it enough. No, no. Was there a point where you started playing and being involved in bands where you realised you you were pretty good and you might be able to to make something yeah. out of it, or was it? That, that implies that I'm good <laughs> now, mate. <laughs> no, because I've never been pretty good. I'm not good at anything. I'm a um, average vocalist. I'm a terrible. Pauling guitarist, ask anybody. Um, I'm a quite good keyboardist and I'm a quite good producer, but I know objectively what I'm good at. What I, do, what I am good at is I'm not giving up, basically. It's like... Join the club. <laughs> well, from 82 to 97, I, when I had that hit record, people were just like, oh, like an overnight sensation. I was like, I've been doing this since 1982. What do you mean overnight? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it took me so long. And basically, everybody else just gave up, you know, because... Uh, you know, and I was when I when the record hit, I was actually at Derby Uni to get a degree because I thought, well, I'll never make money out of music. I better get a straight job so I can keep doing music, which is what I love. 
Uh, and then ironically, the, the last semester of the third year is when the record like hit and everything. But, you know, I've always just wanted to be a musician and make the music I love. Um, and anything else really is like at the side of that because like music's my main thing. But the first gigs I did as uh, well, we did, I should say, because it was a proper band as White Town was like 89 at the Dial in Derby, which is where Joseph Wright is now. So, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was a great venue. And the Dial had so much going on. And if anybody's listening, it's old enough to have been there at the time. They know that I'm not exaggerating. There was a real vibe about the place and it was so arty and I don't know, it, it just created this great atmosphere. And what we need in Derby now is a few more places like that. It's great having the hairy dog, obviously, but we need more. So it's not just like one or two places carrying everything. Yes. Yeah. So I would got, love to see that. Yeah. If you've got a, like a, a bustling scene as well, it obviously attracts more, more yeah. acts, doesn't it? To, to go, oh, Derby's a cool place. It's the same thing as if you've got a street with one cafe, you'll get some business. But if there's 10 cafes, people will go, well, that's Cafe Street, and they all go. Ironically, the more kind of similar things going on, the more you generate a crowd that's into it. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned um, that support acts and it came to Derby. You supported some uh, big bands as well, didn't you, in, in Derby in that time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the third, third gig. Oh, God, we were so bad. I don't know how we got away with it. The third, <laughs> I mean, I would say that I've learned to play guitar since then, but I haven't. Um, <laughs> Uh, the third gig we did was supporting Primal Scream. That's incredible. <laughs> that was like, I don't know how we got that. Because I just had like this set of like, I, I basically just slid an E-shape up and down. I still do now. I'm not even ashamed of it. I'm, You know, sometimes it's an A minor if I'm feeling a little bit you know, experimental. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, third gig was supporting Primal Scream. And the weird thing is, during our gig, um, Bobby Gillespie was at the side and he was just like nodding and he like listened to the whole gig. And it was, I was just like, I can't believe Primal Scream dude, Jesus and Mary Chain dude is there at the side of the stage listening to like how it, it was so weird. And then he just had this really nice chat. He goes, oh, I really like your songs and this. And I was like, here's a cassette. I'm done, Bobby. And it was just really, you, Surreal, know, yeah. like, you feel like you're an idiot. Like, you know, that. oh, here you go. And, um, <laughs> Uh, and then we supported uh, um, a band called The Family Cat, who I really loved. And when we were doing our sound check, they were, like, staring at us. And one of them came over and like, are you taking a piss, mate? So I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, what? What? And he goes, like, that sounds like our song. So I'm like, yeah, that's because we both slide, like, guitar shapes about it. He's like, all right, fair dues. And they thought, they thought we were, like, copying them all. And I was, it wasn't. That's just generally, you know, what how we, the songs were, like, playing. It was that kind of thing. But... Um, it was obviously, you know, I wasn't even that young. I was like 24, 25. But like when you're younger, it's easier being in bands. The older you get, it's the more difficult, you know. Yeah. Um, which is why I switched out of music. Nobody cares about electronic music, what you look like. You could look like Yoda, nobody cares. How did, how did, <laughs> how did it come about then going from a band to just being you on your own, Jyoti? Because <laughs> everybody else left. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a horrible person, a horrible, horrible person to work with. Which is actually, I'm, I'm saying like a joke, but it's true. I'm really like, I want things to be my way. And yeah. I'm really, you know, politically, I'm a communist, but in terms of art, I'm pretty much a dictator. Well, I mean, I, I probably started, but like, um, uh, it's, it's, that's how it is. I want things to be, and also, if I can't sing a song well enough, I'll get somebody else to sing it. So I'm not precious about it. I'm not, it's not, 
It's not the Jyoti show. It's just, well, these are the songs and I want the songs to be as good as possible. Yes. Um, so, you know, that makes you difficult to work with. But also, people, for most people, music's a passing phase. They'll do it for a bit and that's it. And that's fine, you know. But for me, you know, this is it. This is a thing I've been in love with since I was, well, well, since I was seven or eight, you know. So it's always been my thing. When, when, when people have a thing... Like for some people, it's football. For some people, it's painting. For me, it's just music. It's just the best thing ever. Yes. Yeah, I I totally see that being a massive music fan. And also, like, it it transcends so many boundaries. Like, like obviously, I'm very old. But, like, uh, before this this social stuff happened, I remember being uh, out at uh, uh, Rock City in the basement around about Christmas time. And I think it was Helena by MCR. Yeah, it was Helena came on by MCR, Michael Moore Romance. And I ended up dancing with this group of people I didn't know at all. And we were just screaming the lyrics <laughs> into each other's faces, just like, ah! like this, and just like pure going for it. And it was the close, because I'm an atheist, but this is like the closest I get to church. Yes. This is the closest I get to spirituality. Like for a few minutes, for that three or four minutes of the song, you're with people who totally understand what you feel about this music. And it's like a spiritual meeting. Yeah. And nothing else gives me that feeling. Nothing else. You know, I'm straight edge, but like if I found a drug that did that, I'd probably take loads of it. But like nothing else works like music. I always wanted to see the Stone Roses. And yeah. then when they, when, they re, um, when they got back together, I went to see them at Manchester Heaton Park. And I remember them coming out and there was like men in the 50s with Parkers on with Noel Gallagher-style haircuts to one yeah. side. There's little, like, like old women there. There's eight, 17, 18-year-old lads all hugging. And it was just, it, it really just brings yeah. people together, doesn't it? All you are is fans. Nothing yeah. else matters. It doesn't matter how old you are, what colour you are, what gender you are. It's just like, well, we all love this. That's yeah. why we're here. Why would you pay just a crap load of money to be here unless you did love it? Yeah. And I, I, I love that. You know, I think a lot of, and no, societies used to be held together by religion, and we've lost a lot of that. But I think we have to find other ways to, especially, you know, times like this, we have to find other ways to, like, stick together, to not be fearful, to find joy in everyday things, you know, just to find small things that will just brighten your day. And for me, that's a song. Like, the other day, this is really bizarre, but I've got to tell you, I was just going on shuffle through Spotify, um, and I found this Glenn Campbell song that I've not listened to in years called Guess I'm Dumb. Yep. Do you know it? I'm, I'm aware of it. I think it's on one of the playlists I've been uh, in the past, but I wouldn't be able to sing it to you. Yeah, well, I couldn't because, like, it's the most, it's just this beautiful. And, and, like, I know this sounds, and I am overly emo, I admit it, but this song came on and I just listened to it and just cried because it's so good. Really? You know, and obviously he's gone now and I've loved Glenn Campbell for years anyway, but like but like his voice is amazing. And the the and this, this like this harmony all through it and it's just so beautiful. And obviously, you know, that's why he was a uh, a touring beach boy because of, of, of that voice and how well he played guitar and everything. But like i you know when a song just comes out of nowhere and just punches you in the face. Yes. And you're just like, Wow. You just have to like sit down and take stock of yourself. And for me at the minute, that's the kind of thing that's keeping me going because, you know, these aren't easy times and we don't know when things will be back to normal. But I think we have to like 
like I said, find solace when we can. Find things that like lift you up, and that even if they just distract you for a bit, you know, even if it's Crazy Frog, you know, I'm not being judgmental. <laughs> Anything to distract you. Have you, <laughs> have, have you got a favourite song? Oh God, <laughs> whatever, ever, 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 songs, ever. ever. I wasn't planning on asking that. I just popped into my head now. So I'm going to ask if you've got a favourite song. Oh, God. Well, uh, I can narrow it down to two. Is two good enough? Yeah, two is more than good enough. I don't think I'll be able to do two. Um, oh, God. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Um, well, one of them would have to be Computer Love by Kraftwerk. Okay. Which is the song that Coldplay took the melody from. They did that kind of weird interpretation of it yes um and i love that song because they must have written it 7980 and it's it's just like perfect craft work. It's this beautiful melody this beautiful flowing like undulating melodies going through it and these lyrics about i call this number for a data date and everything and basically it's them in 1979 predicting tinder and <laughs> and, and it's basically about uh, anime, isolation, alienation from labour, all the stuff that Crawford talk about of, of that, the fragmentation of society by technology, but also how technology, like now, we're obviously using technology to speak. Yes. So technology could push us apart and make us feel fragmented and isolated, or it can bring us together. And everything is in this one song, and it's a beautiful melody, and it's some of the best production and synthesis that you will ever hear, even now. And it came out in 1981. Um, and it's just a beautiful thing that whenever I put it on, I feel, I just feel connected to it. And it always makes me feel something inside. And obviously that's, I mean, one obvious, but that's also off my favorite ever album. So that kind of helps. Um, and then the second thing would, would be uh, video kill the radio star by the buggles. Really? Yeah. Because I love the fact that's um, a whole story of a song. And I've always loved that song, which is why I nicked that vocal effect for your woman. Yes. You know, obviously Trevor Horn's uh, an incandescent genius. There's no two ways around it in production terms. But just that pop song, if you, li- if you listen to it, it's a perfect pop song. You know, for, for me, I've said this in, like so many times, for me there's three things to make a song perfect. It has to make you dance, make you sing along, and make you think. And if a pop song does three of those, it's perfect. Most pop songs do one out of three, and that's okay. Yes. And that's fine. I'm not asking for perfection all the time. But when a pop song like that one, you know, like uh, Video Kill Radio Star, um, or um, Ghost Town by The Specials, or... um, What's that recent? Oh, um, here's a thing by Sports Team. Yes, I know what you mean. But then the lyrics make you think. Mm, they like, hook you in, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, yeah. I get what you mean. Yeah, and especially things like um, uh, we can change. I think there's a line like we can save the world if we, if we take fewer flights or something like that. Yeah, and they're saying that 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 all uh, everybody's worried about using straws and this and that. Well, we know the people destroying the world. It's not us. It's a few big companies. And they're getting away with it. Yeah. And we have a list of people who are actually ruining the world. It's not us. So, so it's, it's like, you know, when people take on personal responsibility for global problems caused by governments and corporations, well, yeah, that maybe needs singing about. 
it hooks people in if, if, if people are singing about something they're obviously passionate about there's genuine passion involved in it isn't there? I think that yeah. kind of gets people I think that's what, what art is is like whether you're singing about something that you love or some situation that you hate you can tell if something means it or not yes and if they mean it that's kind of seductive it draws you in like even though I'm such a, a political like blowhard. Most of my songs are just love songs. They, they, that's mostly what I write about because that's what I feel. I wish I was like as good as Billy Bragg, but I'm not. I really, I'm, when, when I try and do like the political songs, they're really cringy, and I can't. I just they just annoy me myself. I can't sing them because they're just too cringy. Um, and I wish I could be Billy Bragg or, or McCarthy, but I haven't got that talent. Um, but you know, for love, when I'm feeling something, I'm going to sing it. Yes, yeah. That's and you have and you have something in your head, and you have to sing about them because it's like you're bursting with these feelings, and you have to express them. I know I'm worse. I'm absolutely crazy. I have been on my own for quite a while now. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. I, I I completely get what you're saying about. Um, having the the fire and the like the the passion and something you're if you're feeling it it really comes through. I think you can tell. I mean, how many times you're going to see a gig and like it's not the band's fault, but they may have been on tour for a while. They don't know what city they're in. They don't know their own name. They just know the set list. Yeah, and they're like, "Hey, Nottingham," and they're just like on autopilot. Yes, and you know they are, and they kind of know they are, and it, that's not why they started playing music, but that's just industrial touring. It is. Yeah, it's... sometimes I've been to gigs like I saw. Um, oh God, what I've uh, completely blanked on his name. Um, oh God, I can't. <laughs> it's because because I have to remember it. Uh, the dude that formed K Records. Why can I not remember his name? Oh, I completely completely blanked on it. Uh, anyway, Calvin Johnson. That's it. Yes, that's it. My God, well done. <laughs> You've saved me. <laughs> uh, I saw him play at Bunkers Hill in Nottingham years ago. Yeah, and. Yeah. And it was just him and an acoustic guitar and a mic. That was it. And then halfway through the set, the mic just went down. The computer just failed. And did he stop? No. He just kept going and he did an even better gig. Yeah. And, and I was just like, I can't believe he's just rolled with it. And I'm like, yeah, well, if I'm going to go, I'm just going to sing without mic. Here you go. Come up the front. Yeah. They're the more, the more memorable things, aren't they? When people are making oh, yeah. to make it special for you. I love it when, like, when things like that happen and people you know when people just reach into themselves and go like you know what i'm just going to take this and actually make something out of it make it better than it was before from leaving a band well not leaving a band but having having band members around you going on your own and then getting um to number one in the charts how did that all come about um by a series of (laughs) (laughs) fluky things but also um i think i was lucky in the position i was in in that um, I'd already been releasing stuff on indie labels. People liked my stuff enough to release it for me, so I didn't have to pay out. That's nice. Yes. Uh, especially when you have no money. And um, so I I was thinking, like, well, I, I'll just keep on doing stuff in, in the indie scene, in the underground. Uh, I was released by um, Parasol. So this is, like, this is like early 90s, mid-90s, American indie underground so all those labels like parasol and slumberland and bus stop that was the kind of scene i was allied with even though i 
kind of wasn't because in musical terms and in terms of what I sung about, it wasn't the same kind of thing. And I wasn't so obsessed with the sixties. A lot of those, a lot of those bands were. Um, so that was okay. And I was thinking, yeah, and I'm just releasing stuff on my own. I did the first album, which was just me by this time. It was just me and drum machines and guitars trying to kind of pretend I was a band. Yeah. Like going for that kind of thing. And then I started thinking about why am I pretending that I'm in a band when it's just me? Surely I can start using like break beats and synths and loops more. And, you know, obviously because I started off on synths. So I kind of went back full circle and I kept the guitar in this as well, but I kind of started incorporating more electronic music back into things. Um, and then um, I did the EP that Jorman was on and that came out on Parasol in, I think, July of 96 or so. Okay. And didn't do anything. It was like, it sold moderately well, like all my stuff. It's like, you know, Back then, it's hard to imagine now because of Spotify, but like, if your label pressed a 1,000 or 2,000 and you sold like half or whatever, that was quite good going, you know, for, for an yes. indie band. Like, yeah. We've sold half of what we made. Yay, that's not bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I was used to. And then what happened is um, I was still DJing then in Derby because I've DJed for years. Uh, and also I'm trying to find a new place to DJ. That's a plug for me. So if you want me to come and DJ and do a weird night, get in touch. <laughs> but like, um, I was DJing then at the warehouse um, and I put my own song on. So I put your woman on and people really liked it. And I was like, oh, okay. So I DJed another week and put it on again and people liked it more and they were like cheering and clapping. And then um, uh, one of my mates who was a DJ as well, should I say his name? Yeah, I can do, yeah. It was, uh, it was Ian Wilden. Okay. Uh, he was he was blue note DJ. He's like he's a great looking everything. He came across. He was absolutely battered. He came, <laughs> he came over. He's like, "Mate, mate, what was that song?" And I was like, "It was me." And he's like, "No, no, what was that song?" And I was like, "That that was me." And he was like, "No, no, no, no." He's like, "Your stuff's rubbish. What was, <laughs> what was that really good song you played?" And I held up the thing. I was like, "Look, it's it's me." And he's like. And well, I won't say what you say because it was expletive, so you'd have to bleep it anyway. <laughs> but like, he's like, "That's not you. That's like a proper record." Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Mate, it's me." And he's like, "He's like, yeah, whatever." And then he went off. <laughs> and um, and I got back, and my uh, then girlfriend, I said, "Oh, this weird thing happened with like this record I played it," and she's like, "Well, it is really good. I keep saying you should do something with it." I was like, well, what's the point? I've sent off stuff for years and I've been, you know, by that time I'd had a couple of plays on John Peel and doesn't really do anything. Like you think, oh, this is it. I'll be famous. Well, no, that's it. Hmm. <laughs> you have a brief blip and that's it. <laughs> so I just thought, what's the point? And, and then she was basically like, oh, let's send off some copies of the record, see what happens. I'm like, well, is it worth it? What's the point? And she's like, well, just give it a go. You know, the worst that will happen is nothing. So um, with her encouragement, we, we did. Um, and one of those records obviously ended up on Mark Redcliffe's desk. And I didn't find that until years later, but he hated the cover so much, he had to listen to it. Is that right? Apparently he looked at the cover and thought, this looks awful, what's this? Because I'd done it myself, it was just some computer type. Because, you know, you got, I didn't have like fancy desktop publishing, I just had like an Atari. Yeah. <laughs> so like... <laughs> So, like, um, he put it on, as soon as he put it on, he liked it. Now, he played on his nighttime show, 
uh, and it got really popular. And I was, and and I was thinking, but this is it'll come and go. But then, luckily for me, he had to fill in for Chris Evans, who was then doing a breakfast show. Um, and then when he filled in, he played it at breakfast time. So for going from a nighttime listenership, he went to a breakfast time listenership. Yeah, it's like the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I don't know Radio 1's listening figures now, but I know for around then, it must have been like around 20 million or so. Yeah, it would have been ridiculous at that point, yeah. It, yeah. Um, and then suddenly, you know, I get a call saying, oh, you know, um, Simon Mayer would like to uh, have you on his show and stuff like that. And I'm like, why? And then like, oh, people request this record. And it basically just blew up mad from there. So really, the, the person to thank for the record, you, for ever hearing record, would be Mark Radcliffe and Radio 1. Because without them, I would just be still... Well, I'd be doing what I'm doing now, to be honest. Because it's not like I'm living in LA around a guitar-shaped swimming pool. But like... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, people would never have heard it. So it's it's really down to those people. Was it crazy? Did it did it go crazy, people recognising the street and stuff? Or was it kind of... Well, yeah, well, Derby's not a big place, is it? So like, if yeah, you're true, yeah. in a medium-sized pond... Um, and there is this tendency, which we were on about earlier, that sometimes Derby people don't celebrate Derbiness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're a bit like, like in America, people are like, hey, good job, well done. Because Derby people are like, oh, you're that bloke, are you? Yes. <laughs> oh, <I bet> <laughs> so true. Joke, oh, yeah. Like, uh, who was that wanker who had that song? Oh. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. You probably have to bleep that, sorry. <laughs> but, like, no, I don't uh, worry. Uh, but like, so there was a bit of that, but a lot of people were nice. But the main thing is I kind of went crazy straight away because I like, I, I mean, my thing then was to go around town, go through record shops because they still were record shops and not be disturbed and, you know, just do stuff, go to bookshops, go to record shops. But when people know you, they like look at you. Yes. Um, and bear in mind, I was only tiny amount famous for like a fortnight. It wasn't a big amount of fame. It wasn't for long, but it was way too much. Really? I don't know. I don't know how real famous people like cope or why you'd want to be famous because like, say if you're like, say if you're like Lady Gaga or The Weeknd or, yeah, you know, or, you know, or Liam Gallagher and you fancy popping down to the local spa to get a box of Tic Tacs and some Rolos. Well, you can't, can you? What exactly, do you do? yeah. Do you have to take out your whole security force with you? Do you have to get into a disguise? Yeah, it's, it's baffling, isn't it? It's like a different, completely different world. What if you just fancy nipping out to get against us? What do you do? Do you, do you send a chauffeur to get you one? Yeah. <laughs> is, is that the same? I mean, and I had a small version of that, and it kind of went crazy, and that's when I moved to Norwich, basically, because... In Norwich, nobody knew who I was at all. So it was great. It was a relief. Um, and But I had a lot of mental health issues then um, that, to an extent, still affect me now. And I've had counselling for it and stuff. So, And I talk about this kind of stuff because I think people should be more open about mental health stuff because it just helps everybody. Um, and it was just a very difficult time. Even though it was the best time, it was also the worst time. Yes, yeah. Um, I'm I'm a big um, believer in the same thing. I talk about my mental health problems a lot on the podcast because I kind you of have to, yeah, especially as men, 
especially as men, men aren't allowed to talk about this kind of stuff. But from my generation, you know, I'm a 50-something bloke, but you just, you're not meant to. And, and, and if you keep silent, it's not good. You know, no, no, I'm a big believer in, in, in talking about it. And I, I talk I, about I, it to the point I, of doing people's heads and I think, but I don't care. No, so I, don't, I think that's good. Honestly, like when I was in Derby, I, I got to a stage of, because I was having such a weird time. It wasn't really true what I was thinking. I was going a little bit crazy. And the, the final thing for me is I went to like Sainsbury's to try and do some shopping. And I thought somebody was like whistling my song. I mean, I don't think they were now. I think I just kind of lost it. And ended up having this full, like, full-on panic attack, and had to leave a full trolley and just drive home again. Wow! And I started to get like really agoraphobic and just yeah. worried about going out. I remember at one stage, my my then girlfriend, she said, um, "I'm worried about you because all you're doing is ordering in pizzas and playing Goldeneye." <laughs> really. And I was just like, "But I'm happy doing that." She's like, "But you used to be out clubbing and DJing and doing stuff, and now you're not." Yeah. Yeah. And before you know it, if you if you don't deal with things, they can really snowball. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's like there's no difference between like I'm I'm in uh, counselling now, but because of relationship stuff that happened last year, and I'm not embarrassed about it because like if you've got a dodgy knee, you go to the doctor and say I've got a dodgy knee, sort it out. If you've got something going on with your your brain, your mentality, you get some help. Yeah. There's yeah. no shame. There's no stigma. It's just, well, my brain's a bit wonky. I need to go and get sorted. I use that analogy, similar analogy, a lot. But well, it's, it's like a mechanic. If, you, if your car's acting up, you go to mechanic, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. You don't be. Oh, I'm really, I'm really ashamed that I've got um, like a faulty axle. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Well, you go and get it seen to, don't I know. you? I know, and it's, and then you get the um, the one that always gets to me is a. Well, what have you got to be anxious about? You're no. a, you've got a good job. You've got, you think, oh, it doesn't quite work like that, does it? It's, uh... Yeah, no, not at all. No, so, but well, I, I mean, also, if people are, have never experienced actual depression or, and they've been neurotypical their entire life, they, they gen, it's not their fault. They genuinely can't understand yeah. how it is. Like around Christmas time, I was having panic attacks, and that's why I'm in counseling again, because I was getting severely anxious and weirdly panicky for no reason. Yeah. When there's a reason, it's fine. If you're panicky because you're, you know, there's a tiger, that's, that's okay. <laughs> but when you've got, like, flight or flight response for five hours for no reason, yeah, and, you, and like, in your house and you're going, you're just, like, you can't settle and your hands are shaking, you don't know why, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. If you've not experienced it, you can't really understand it. No, no, and it's hard to explain it to people as well. Yeah, but we have to talk more about it and make it just... I, to be honest, I think we need to make it boring. Yes. So it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to the thing, I'm going to the like, It's just like, you know, just a boring thing. It's just part of everyday life. You just take care of yourself. Same as going to the gym. If you go to the gym, it's the same as that. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, in the limelight, in that, in the problems and issues you have following, does, has that ever affected... Because you've carried on making music, so to go out of the public eye, is it affected like how you make music or wanting to make music or have you just kind of just got carried on doing what you were doing beforehand? Well, I see the whole Yorman thing, the EMI thing, as being a blip on an otherwise completely undistinguished career. So like, <laughs> yeah, this is basically like I'm doing now what I was doing before. I love all my songs because songwriters always do. Yes. 
I don't know if the rest of the world will. You know, some people have said like, well, you did this song and that's better than your one. And I was like, well, it's only you that thinks that. So sadly. Yeah. But like all you can do as a songwriter is, is keep making stuff that you love. Now, when I was on EMI, and it was only for a year, it was only very brief. They kind of, the whole experience was so bad, I wanted to give up making music. So I know that that isn't for me. You know, good luck to, to bands and artists that can work with major labels. Good luck to you. I don't know how you do it. I really don't. But if you can manage, make it work for you, well done. I can't. Yeah. Um, so you have to learn that lesson yourself. Um, and for me, it's like, like last year, I released two albums. Now, <laughs> a major label wouldn't like you doing that. They would say, no, we stagger them out and do this. And we have a release plan. We we'll do this and we'll do, and we'll do this and do that. I don't want to do that. I just want to release music when I release music. Yeah. Um, and obviously now, because I run my own label, I can release something and in a week's time, it's, it's live on Spotify around the world. It's on Apple Music, it's on Google, it's on Amazon, it's on everything. Yeah. yeah so to have that freedom is amazing. And the two albums I released last year, I'm the most proud of in my life so far because otherwise I would not have released them. Yes. <laughs> if, they were, if they were worse than stuff I'd released before, I'd be like, oh dear, I'll better go away and write some better stuff. Yeah. But, but I released an album on the 1st of January 2019 and then another album on Christmas Eve 2019. Um, and if I listen to that body of work, I think, well, I love these songs. I know not many other people do. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I have around about half a million listeners a month on Spotify, 90% of them just for the one song for your woman. Um, but even if it's 1% or 2% or 5% that listen to the other stuff, and they do because I get all the figures, that's like, you know, I released a song and within a week or two, uh, it had like 7,000 hits on YouTube and it had been streamed so many times. I would have dreamt of that in 1995. Yes. Like if I'd released a record and 7,000 people had bought it, I'd be like, what? <laughs> I would have been like, I would have been amazed. So it can be it can be as a positive that it, your woman is is like a vehicle to direct people towards your other world oh, and helps you to fund carrying on making music as well. I, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I have to emphasise this. Like people sometimes try and make me angry by calling me, or they try and insult me by calling me a one hit wonder. And I'm like, I don't take it as an insult at all because, first of all, like I said so many times, better been a no hit wonder. Better been a no hit wonder. Yeah, but also like. I, I don't want to like over it, but like there'll be people listening to this that are musicians. Yeah. And you might be 12 or you might be 40 or you might be 60. You listen to this, you're a musician. Any musician listening to this, they know how tough it is to be a musician. Like you have to struggle and struggle. And 99% of the people that are musicians never have any success at all. And of that 1% left, 99% of them nearly make it, but don't. Mm. They're signed, they have a tour, they have tour support, they appear on this programme, they do this, they do that, they're on Radio 1. Doesn't quite catch fire. People don't quite like it. Then they're dropped. Yeah. You know? So for me to have had any success, I feel like the luckiest, you know, insert expletive there, in the world. Yeah. Because I'm not that talented. I'll be the first person to say that. So it's like... Um, 
I think I've got a good ear for tunes and music, which is why, you know, I've always DJed. So I can, I, I do songs that I find catchy. Yes. So sometimes people will agree, sometimes they won't. But like, the one thing, one thing is like, if you're a new band now, say if you're a new band from Derby and you're starting off, how do you get people to go to your Spotify? How do you get people to go to your YouTube or your TikTok or whatever? Like, yeah. it's an uphill struggle. Whereas, because of the one song I had, you know, 23 years ago, I have this many people going to my music channels and they're always going to see my new album first because I always make sure it's at the top. Yes. Yeah. Now, most people won't listen, but even if a few do, I'm happy. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, it's, for me, it's like, I, I feel genuinely blessed to have had any success. And also that song people connect with in different ways and love a lot. And especially I've had a lot of people write to me because uh, they've been uh, young gay people or young trans people. And the songs kind of found them and given them a hug when they've needed it. Yes. And, and I love that about music because it's the same for me growing up. You know, some bad times in my life, you just have to listen to a certain song that like makes you feel less alone. Well, it's it's definitely in my top five. Although I, I won't be able to discuss my favourite records because it changes on a daily basis. But your woman, I remember watching a video as uh, a music loving kid in Derby and like the marketplace and everything. And I've always loved the song, and um, it'll always be up there for me as well. So that's why I've always been so keen on and getting you on. So. So you you know the story about that behind the video. Do you want to know? About no, go that? on. Yeah, definitely. So like um, the video was directed by an amazing talented director called Mark Adcock, who also did work, I think, with um, other great uh, bands. Especially, I'm sure he did Cable as well, Derby Band Cable. Yeah. Um, and he was just a great director. Um, and we talked on the phone concepts about it. And I was a f- film student. So I was saying, can we get like a German expressionist feel? Can we get like this kind of a feel for it? I want to try and link with a trumpet sample. So we want it to be 1930s, but not too overtly 30s. He's like, yeah, if I shoot it on Bolex and overdo this and overdo that, and I'll put it in a bar. He had all these great ideas. Then we went to like AMI and they're like, yeah, we'll shoot it like Rand, like London and everything. I was like, London? Why are we going to shoot it in London? They're like, oh, it's because it's been much cheaper and everything, and there's all the facilities in London. I was like, they're like, where do you want to shoot? I was like, I want to shoot it in Derby. And I remember them saying, well, who knows what Derby is? Who knows about Derby? I was like, Derby people do. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, I had to have, like, a real fight, because I was just like, oh, nobody wants it to be in Derby. I was like, I do. Haven't I got creative control? I want the video to be in Derby. I want the Debenhams building to be in, like, like, with the lights on to be there. I want everything like that I know from Derby in the thing, you know, even Duckworth Square. Yeah. Um, but like, um, but yeah, that nearly didn't happen. You'd nearly have had just another London music video on the underground or something. I don't know what they would have done. Well, it's funny how stories like that happen because I was like, I kind of knew the video, but being, well, five or six when the song came out, yeah. um, I, always, I knew the video before the song and then grew to love. So that's like a, a weird thing and have, and like then getting this nostalgia with the people of Derby as well, isn't it? Having the Derby, the centre of Derby in the video that was well, the biggest hit you've you've had. So you you well, you gained a fan in me anyway through that. Well, it's that, and also I knew that I really wouldn't be having much major label success because I know what like the chances were. So I was like, this is my one shot to like 
use this song to, first of all, try and provide for me and get some money, obviously, because you want to, like, be able to survive. But also, can I use it artistically to, like, say things about where I'm from? What's the important things? What, where are the places I go in Derby? Like, I specifically said, there's got to be, like, a marketplace shop. Yeah. We've got to have, like, ducks, and we have to have, like, the fat ramen and, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> fat ramen. Uh, uh, but, like, um, it's just, um, I don't know. I, I just wanted it to be representative of things. There's even shots of, like, where I'm on the telly. Yeah, uh, sideways or something, and I think that was from—I can't remember what the shop was called, but it was the top of Badminton Lane, the electrical shop. Oh, Potts. Um, no, the other side. The big oh, the other side. Oh, I know. Yes, yeah, yeah. Reliance or something is now. I think. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, I'm sure it used to be like Rumbleos or something. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, some, yeah, it was something. Yeah, I remember it's still an electrical shop now. I think, isn't it? But yeah, um, yeah strange. But I remember saying to Mark, I was like, at the at the crossroads of East Street and is is it Albion Street they call it now? Yes. Albion Street, Street yeah. And I was like, when you when it's Christmas time, they'll have all the lights on the outside, and they always look really cool. And for me, as a as a Derby person, that's when you knew it's Christmas. Yes. Like those lights would come on, and everything would start to feel Christmassy, and you'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know. And I was like, we've got to get all that in, and he was just like, yeah, all right, no problem. And he just did. Really. Yeah, and, and I know it sounds weird, but, like, the video was really important to me to have have it in Derby, have, like, uh, the waterfall in it and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, they're, like, um, it was, and and just, like, the scene where they're weeding the pram and stuff. God, I've not seen it for a while. I need to, like, go and rewatch it. I'm probably misremembering things all over the place. But, like, um, and also that was pre, that was before Quad was built. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was just like the grassy knoll at the side then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all all open, wasn't it? All the way you could see like the Castle House from the top of Sadlergate, couldn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got to go. So, and also now that means it's almost kind of like a historical document in itself. Yes. Yeah, it definitely is. Because when I've watched it, not, um, well, two, three days ago now, um, I thought that it's like looking at stuff. I mean, like Duckworth Square's not there, is it? And um, the, the quad wasn't there at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you go back to them days. That was the days of no into, wasn't it? Just the main centre and and the Eagle Centre. The Eagle Centre, yeah. Just I made a White Town video for the first uh, White Town song, uh, and that was made in 1990. And I shot that in Super 8 myself. And on that, we drive down uh, Badminton Lane and go around the corner and back, and then we drive down St Peter Street. Yes, recording nice. It wasn't pedestrianised. Yeah. And also, we drive round the marketplace. Wow, that oh, yeah. Like, the marketplace used to have, on the left-hand side, there was canters, and there was, like, the bus stops that would be, like, the 151, 152, 131 to Belper. <laughs> that was, I remember all these buses from when I was a kid. <laughs> I like how you can't remember your own number one video, but you remember the bus stops <laughs> on the marketplace. No, because I used to catch them all the time from there. <laughs> and, and then, like, uh, and then on the other side would be the buses I used to catch to Will Morton in the morning when I was going to Will Morton. Yes. And obviously, you just drive around the thing because it was pre pedestrianised. So, like, all these bits of film and everything are little bits of history. Yeah, it's, it's, it's changed so much. I think I can vaguely, vaguely remember. Not St. Peter Street, but I think around the marketplace. I might yeah. have mis- I might misremember. I might have seen a picture and I'm mistaking it for memory, but I think I can yeah. 
just about where walkabout it was, isn't it? That, that just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's where all the bosses went from. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Even I feel old now. <laughs> <laughs> you are old, that's why. So I've kept it for a lot, lot, lot longer than I said I was, so I apologise for that. Oh, that's fine. I've enjoyed chatting. It's been good fun. You, what, what's, what's next for you then? What projects have you got going on at the minute? Uh, I released a video last Saturday, that's up on my YouTube now, which I recorded uh, <laughs> in isolation, like everybody is. Every single artist in the world, musician was like, here's my isolation video. It's going to get really dull for people soon. Um, I'm writing new stuff at the minute, as always. Um, I'm trying to do videos for the existing two albums from last year, because I want to have a video for every single track, basically. Yes. Um, but... Um, Really, at the minute, I'm trying to find, uh, I'm trying to find a good venue around Derby or Knotts to DJ again because I miss doing that, um, and I want to play like new music. Yeah, you know, I like old music, obviously, um, but I want to just help new music and new bands. There is, I mean, at the minute, I let, before before I get, there's so much great new music out and about. I just can't. There's so many good new bands like. Um, do you like Biba Doobie? I've not. No, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of them. Check out Biba Doobie. They're on Dirty Hit. Um, she's this amazing singer-songwriter from London, and she just has the best songs. And they're kind of like 90s slacker rock, but now. Okay. So, I've just, just found Well, yeah, they are pop. 152 million streams. I've just, just added them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like an underground thing. Yeah, no, she's no. Gonna, and her, her collaboration with Pao Fu... Uh, I think it's just gone to Radio 1, so that's like a collab. Uh, well, he's sampled it, basically. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, them, obviously, like, sports team that I mentioned before. Yeah. The new Data Projectors album is really, really good. I'm looking forward to I think there's a new Gajira album this year because uh, Magma was 2016, so I love Gajira. They're amazing. There's yeah. just amazing music from all over. Um, and... But there's so much great music, but it's harder to get access to it. Yes. And yeah. also, all the things we used to use as filters, like the magazines and the TV shows and all that, they've kind of gone. Yes. So how do you find out what to listen to and what not? I mean, it's, it's all right for me and you, because we're music geeks and we'll go and find stuff and we'll love it. But the average person hasn't got that time. No. No, that's true. And it's such an oversaturation of because it's so easy, people putting the stuff out there, so you've got to sift through a lot of stuff that yeah. you've got occasionally. Yeah, yeah to, to find the nuggets, it takes a while. And who's got that time? Yeah, no one. Um, so I would love to be able to like DJ and do like new music or just, just uh, you know. And you well, probably... we'll give a shout out on our Instagram once we put this up there as well. That if anyone, yeah, if there's, a, if there's a venue that wouldn't mind me playing like something intensely heavy next to something quite indie pop and twee. Because <laughs> yeah. I get bored of playing the same thing, you know what I mean. I like everything, so yeah, yeah. We'll put a shout out on our Instagram to our followers and Twitter and whatnot. Once when I put this out there, we'll we'll put a little thing on there saying if you want. And it, the cool. most eclectic the eclectic DJ night in the in army. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, well, thank you very much for your time. I, I, I really appreciate it. I've kept you, but it's been really interesting for me. It's something I wanted to do for a long while, and I hope uh, I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I have. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's um, flattered and I'm honoured. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I just... Uh...